Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is the 13th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, intended to give you an inside look into my special guest's life journey. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this experience of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. I hope you'll see a bit of yourself in their journey and embrace. We're more similar than not. And everyone, hang on. Today's episode will blow you away. Even with 24 hours, we'd still need more time. My guest is the epitome of three words, make change happen. Around the globe, heads of state to remote villagers, this remarkable human being has walked the walk, often making the impossible possible. Trained as a physician anthropologist, he's pursued a career around health, education, and improving the lives of the poorest and most vulnerable as educator, medical expert, and global leader. Few have his track record of impact across public, private, and nonprofit sectors. For his work in formulating new and successful models to treat and contain major diseases in the world's poorest regions, he was awarded the MacArthur Genius Fellowship. He was recognized by U.S. News and World Report as one of America's 25 best leaders and named one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. His career of service is distinguished. At the nomination of President Obama, he served as the 12th president of the World Bank Group, during which his tenure dramatically advanced its work to end poverty and help those suffering from fragility, including millions forced from their homes by climate shocks, conflict, and violence. His leadership in the 2014 was critical to the frontline Ebola response in the Democratic Republic of the Congo to contain the outbreak. Before the bank, he co-founded Partners in Health, a nonprofit medical group providing healthcare to poor communities on four continents. He was on the ground developing treatment programs for complex, deadly diseases, such as multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis and AIDS. Earlier in career, he was director of the World Health Organization's HIV-AIDS department. Numerous global health leadership roles at Harvard Medical and School of Public Health and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Oh, and he served as the president of Dartmouth College. I am humbled, I am honored to introduce my friend and idol, Dr. Jim Young Kim. Dr. Jim, welcome to Our Voices. Thanks so much for having me, Molly. It's really a treat, and um, I've really noticed some serious high points in your career. We all know the low points, the struggles, most define us and help us find our true north. Uh, I'm grateful for your willingness to give listeners a glimpse into your journey and uh, what life has been for you. Well, thank you. It's, a, it's, a, it's great to be on. I don't know that um, I've, uh, I've always said it uh, skillfully, um, like you do, Molly, but uh, uh, I think what you're doing to help people say, say things skillfully, but you know, more importantly, uh, to build the kind of human relationships that, that give your life meaning, but that also make you more effective. I, I think this is just so important. And I can't remember 
uh, ever in all those jobs that, that you, you mentioned, I can't remember ever having someone come up to me and say, you know, uh, here's a way of, of saying it, saying it more skillfully so that uh, your relationships will improve and the outcomes will get better. I, I just can't remember anyone ever having done that. So I think you're really, really onto something. I thank you for being a supporter and, as I say, part of the solution. So, uh, start us off. Soul, family. Yeah, you know, um, so uh, the, everything about uh, my life and me even being here is just so improbable. Uh, you know, my, we, we, my mother and father uh, were both refugees. So, they, they grew up during the Japanese occupation of, uh, of the Korean Peninsula. Um, my father in the north, uh, my mother was actually born in Shanghai. Uh, there was a group of, um, of Korean patriots who were, who were working against the Japanese occupation. And so she was born there. Uh, you know, during the war, um, my father escaped from North Korea. He was just 19 years old and uh, crossed the border uh, literally in the middle of the night, somehow got himself into dental school, somehow got himself uh, to New York City, <clears throat> he he was really interested in in uh, the West. Learned English was an interpreter for the um, uh, for the for the Korean Army Dental Corps, uh, and one of the American dentists got him a scholarship to to come and study periodontics um, at uh, at New York University. My mother was a was one of the top students in in the the top high school in Korea, and so she got a scholarship. One of two. Uh, Korean women who uh, came to the United States for undergraduate education in the early 1950s. And they met in New York City. So, you know, it, the improbability every step of the way uh, in the middle of a war, uh, they met, married. Uh, my older brother was born in New York City. We went back to Korea. I was, I was born. Um, she was, my mother was pregnant with me when, when, she, when they went back to Korea and Korea was a mess. Um, this was in 1959. It was one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, immediately post-war, there were demonstrations in the street. Uh, an army general had become uh, president, Park Chung-hee. And so they just felt that there weren't very many opportunities uh, for us. My sister was born a few years after me. So we came back and uh, my father had to go through dental school all over again. And, and so um, uh, we spent two years in Dallas, Texas at, at Baylor University. He got his dental degree and then he needed to find a place where he felt that an Asian man could be a dentist. I mean, he was worried that um, you know, if we didn't go to the right place, uh, people would not come to him as a dentist. I mean, who was going to want an a Asian man, uh, you know, putting, uh, you know, his hand in their mouth. So we ended up going to State Center, Iowa, a town of about 2,000 people um, that was losing its dentist. The dentist was retiring. So uh, he, he took uh, us, the family of five, to this tiny little town. And, you know, my mother was an intellectual. She had uh, done her master's degree at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Uh, she had studied with uh, Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich and, and uh, some of the great uh, theologians and philosophers uh, of uh, the 1950s. And so going to a, a town of 2000 in the middle of Iowa was, uh, was, a, was, a, was quite a stretch. And so, you know, for us, you can imagine if we, for, you know, I was five, my brother was six and a half, my sister was uh, three years younger. 
we first came to Dallas, Texas. We didn't speak a word of English. Uh, we quickly forgot all our Korean, which is really uh, tragic, and and uh, uh, then moved to this tiny town in Iowa. And it we were the 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 the, the just an enormous oddity in the middle of uh, that tiny little town. Uh, we eventually moved to a larger town in Iowa, where I where I grew up, uh, Muscatine, Iowa. My mother then uh, uh, did her PhD in philosophy at the University of Iowa, which is nearby. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the thing that I remember most about uh, growing up in Iowa is that we were just oddities, you know, and, 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 you know, eventually my father was a dentist. He did well. He was a good dentist. And so, you know, economically we were buffered. Um, but, you know, there were no other Asians in, in Iowa. When we moved to the larger town of Muscatine, Iowa, um, there were more Asians, frankly, mostly um, uh, adopted orphans, you know, Korean orphans that had been adopted by American families. But that was it. And so I grew up, um, you know, I, I played sports. I was a quarterback on the football team. I played basketball. I was played on the golf team. You know, I, you know, I was on student council. Um, my brother and I were valedictorians of our high school class. So we were, you know, we did a lot of the, the established sort of, uh, uh, you know, Asian type things. You do well in school. Uh, you know, we, 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 we were in sports, but there was never any question that we were part of the scene. I mean, we were not, we were, uh, we were definitely different. And the minute we, you know, drove out of the, of Muscatine, Iowa, where people knew us, you know, you know, people stared at us. People said, oh, you know, you, you speak English so well, at least to the kids. Um, you know, where did you come from? So it, it, that was just always an issue for us. We always knew that, that um, uh, you know, that, that, that America was one thing and we were something else. We weren't quite sure what we were, but we were something else. And all three of us had lost our ability to speak Korean. You know, I went back and learned how to speak Korean uh, to, to, you know, as part of my anthropology uh, work. But my brother and older brother and younger sister still speak almost no Korean. And so, you know, it's hard to know what you're anchored to if you've grown up like this, you know? And, and so um, unfortunately all the anti-Asian violence that I see these days, you know, I can, I can see how this sort of curiosity and, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, and some of it, a lot of it was just polite, but, you know, things like, uh, where did you come from? Um, you know, how did you learn to speak English so well? Those kinds of things, I can see how that can turn ugly with the right kind of uh, encouragement. Wow. I am really applauding for you. And I, I am really applauding to the big guy up there who somehow made it happen that your parents met and that you exist because you're right. The, the rolling any amount of dice, any amount of times, that would just never happen. Um, do you, did you, how did your parents, if at all, try to coach you through the being different. And, and I so relate because, you know, my sisters and I were gymnasts and we played violin and we were reasonably smart and the kind of doing well just set you out so that no one made super fun of you. Um, but I'm wondering if how they, if they, you know, tried to help you through it. Yeah. You know, um, uh, it, it's interesting because my, my parents, I think were quite different uh, from a lot of Asian parents. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm working on a book and Unfortunately, I've been working on it for way too long. I have a couple of drafts of it, but my brother, uh, uh, older brother, 
uh, has been helping me edit it. And he's reminded me of things that I had forgotten. And so one of the things that I had forgotten was just how tough my dad was. So my father, um, he spoke English very well. He understood uh, everything. He um, enjoyed speaking English. He, he you know, he, his, he, he was very fluent, but he had a strong accent. And so um, uh, one day we were going through in, in Dallas, we were still in Dallas, a Jack in the Box. And the, the, you know, Jack in the Box had this newfangled thing where you, you order, you speak into a little box, and then you go around and you pick it up, drive through, right? And it was, a, it was a, a cool new thing back then. And so the guy who was taking our order couldn't understand my father. And he kept asking him over and over again, what was that? What was that? What was that? And so, uh, you know, I think most uh, um, immigrants would be embarrassed by that. But my father was angry. <laughs> so he, 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 he finally got the order done. And then when we pulled around, okay, instead of like, you know, quietly and meekly saying, oh, I, you know, sorry, I don't speak English. Well, he yelled and screamed at this guy, this poor guy who was taking the order uh, about, you know, how rude he was. And, 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 and so we were all embarrassed. But then as we look back, we can see that um, just my father did never took crap from anybody, right? He was, uh, he was not ashamed of who he was, you know, I mean, and, and, the, and the guys, you know, uh, survived a war. He, 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 when he left, he left North Korea at 19, never saw his parents again until the day he died. And, uh, you know, uh, um, so this, this was a tough guy and he kind of built it into us. He said, you know, don't take that crap. My mother, you know, she, uh, her, her English was even better than my father's, even less accented. And she did her PhD in philosophy at the University of Iowa. Um, you know, she also uh, uh, made it clear to us that, that we're, you know, the, the, you know, sitting back and, you know, not, uh, uh, not making any waves. This is not what she thought was important. And she had heard Martin Luther King preach uh, and, and had, had heard his sermons when she was at Union Theological Seminary. Um, uh, well, it wasn't preaching, but she had, she had, she had, uh, um, uh, uh, it was um, uh, a few years behind him. But in that Union Theological Seminary world, was, there was a guy named James Cohn, uh, who was a, um, uh, a leading uh, African theologian of liberation theology, and, and, and you know, a, a an approach to um, uh, working with poor people that uh, that has defined so much of what I've done. But anyway, she she knew about these guys. She she read all about um, uh, Martin Luther King, and so from a very young age, she exposed us to these kinds of ideas. And you know, I remember her talking to us about what Martin Luther King was trying to do uh, in 1968. I was nine years old at the time, and so uh, you know that was what I grew up with. And I think that's why I've. Um, you know, I, I I've been a fighter, um, and and uh, you know, um, it it shows up in the sports I played, uh, and in, and in fact, the reason I got the job at Dartmouth College was not because I was Asian, was not because of all the things that I'd done. Uh, it was because the um, investment bankers, uh, you know, many of whom are my very very good friends to this day, the investment bankers thought that I was really competitive. That I would that I didn't mind taking on a fight, 
And so that's why they hired me, you know, not because I was a, um, uh, you know, a, a quiet, uh, placid, uh, you know, uh, uh, Asian American who just tried to do all the right things. And so, you know, there's a part of that in my history. My, I, you know, I wanted to study politics and, uh, and philosophy at, uh, at Brown when I went there. And my father said, uh, you know, why don't you wait until after you finish your residency, your medical residency? Then after that, you can study, you know, politics and philosophy. And he was kind of right because that's what I, you know, I got into medical school first and then I did uh, the PhD in anthropology. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, so there was that little bit of, you know, uh, have a skill so that, that whenever you're, uh, wherever you are, that you have the skill that no one can take away from you. And I've heard, you know, very similar stories. My, you know, one of my mentors, um, uh, he's 95 now, Howard Hyatt, um, uh, was one of, you know, relatively few Jewish students at Harvard. And he, he was actually a, the, at first the victim of, uh, of, the, of a Jewish quota system in the 1940s when he you know, first was going to, uh, to, to college. And then finally he did get into Harvard and went there. But, but uh, you know, Jewish families, Asian families, you know, keep your head down, you know, uh, 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 have a skill uh, that no one can take away from you. So I had a little bit of that. But, um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been a fighter, um, I guess, you know, much more than you'd think uh, uh, among, uh, you know, uh, as an Asian American. And, and the thing is, you know, when I go to, when I went, finally went back to Korea for my PhD work and I um, uh, learned the language, man, you know, in, in Korea, uh, you know, folks are not quiet and placid and sit back and just do what they're supposed to do. There's a lot of uh, of intensity and and uh, and and fighting and and you know um, bullying and all those things that exist in any society. So it's um, you know it, it's something that that uh, uh, you hear a lot. The model minority, uh, uh, you know, look at the way Asians have uh, have done so well. You know, why are these other minorities complaining so much when you see what uh, uh, Asians have done? And uh, that, that's always been uh, such a painful thing uh, for me to hear, uh, you know, because it's, um, first of all, it, it's not that true. And we can see it's not true, especially with all the Asian violence. Uh, but it's just uh, another way of, uh, you know, uh, a backhandedly, you know, slapping, uh, you know, all the other people of color who, who've struggled with so many different uh, uh, um, issues in, in this country. And so, you know, um, I, uh, the, my Asian identity was incredibly important to me for a long time, but mostly in the negative. And so, uh, you know, my, my brother and my sister, I guess, are more well-adjusted than I am. Uh, but for me, I had to figure it out. I had to feel, what does this mean to be Korean? And so um, part of the idea of doing a PhD in anthropology was to figure out all the stuff that I just, you know, um, I, I told you about. What did it mean for me to come from this uh, peninsula uh, of, you know, what about 60, 70 million people now? Uh, what, what does that mean? What, how, how does that affect my life? And so for me, it was really important to go back, learn how to speak the language, learn how the society worked. And I, in a way, kind of got it out of my system. Right? Uh, I realized, okay, these are people just like anyone else. 
now you know what the customs are. Now you can speak the language. Now you know you're recognizable uh, as a as a as a Korean person. You know I feel comfortable with uh, uh, you know with 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 what it was and where it was going. Uh, and, and then I felt like I could go on and 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 do other things. And uh, now with all the violence, I, I I'm I, I you know it's it's a good thing in a way. Uh, you know, um, what you said, Molly, about, well, you know, as long as you keep your head down and achieve and do all the right things, everything will be fine. I think Asian Americans are now finally waking up to say, well, you know, actually things aren't fine. And, uh, you know, uh, Asian Americans in New York City are not, are be are careful now about getting into the subway. And so what I hope that leads to uh, is 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 what you know Asian identity has meant for me. Uh, it's saying, okay, now that I know how that feels, I can understand what it's like uh, to feel uh, that you may get hurt or you may be killed just because of the way you look. And so, what 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 I hope comes out of this is a much greater awareness of what life has been like and what life continues to be like for Black and Brown people, uh, for women. Uh, uh, you know, in 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 uh, in in our world, and a sense that you know um, uh, that solidarity with these groups that have been telling us that 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 racism and the, the violence of racism is real, a solidarity with uh, with with the groups that I you know frankly think Asian Americans have not uh, uh, you know ha- have not really embraced before. I'm curious when if someone asks you, do you say I'm Korean? I'm Korean American. I'm American. I am just wondering what noun you use. You, you know, uh, Molly, it, it it all depends. You know, so um, I, you know, I was part of uh, what we call the Asian American movement in college. That that's that's you know when I, when I went uh, graduated from high school, went to the University of Iowa, and part of it was because my my guidance counselors. Um, said, hey, Jim, you know, you've done really well uh, and your test scores are good. I think that in addition to applying to the University of Iowa and Iowa State, you really should consider, you know, just go for it. Apply to the University of Wisconsin, too. Uh, you know, that, that, was their, that was their sense. My mother was saying to us, why don't you guys go east, you know, go to the Ivy League? And she had colleagues who'd been who studied at Harvard when she was at Union Theological Seminary and all the great schools. And so, uh, but we said, you know, why would we want to go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton? I mean, they have terrible football teams and, you know, there's nothing going on uh, out there. We, we just didn't know. And um, so, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, um, the, the, when I ended up transferring from University of Iowa to Brown, it was an amazing experience. It's the first time I'd seen all these uh, Asian Americans, uh, you know, my age, uh, similar background. It was just, it was intoxicating. Um, you know, we shared so many experiences. Uh, and, and, and yet, you know, in, in the midst of all that, I felt um, much more drawn to uh, the uh, other uh, students of color. You know, the, the, we had something at Brown called the Third World Center. And it was kind of, you know, it's kind of cute now to think about it. Uh, you know, uh, people of color, you know, um, uh, Mexican-American, Puerto Rican-Americans were, there were a lot of them. There, there was, uh, of course, African-Americans. And they were just beginning 
to call themselves African-American at that time, uh, and Asian-Americans. Uh, and the vast majority of the Asian-Americans really felt uncomfortable at the Third World Center. Um, the, you know, the, most of them came from large cities. Uh, parents were professionals, and they just didn't feel very comfortable. But for me, I felt not only comfortable, uh, but I was just fascinated by the stories that I was hearing from uh, you know, the other students of color. And, and, and in fact, their experiences of, of racism and marginalization, um, you know, uh, many of them were also economically marginalized, and I, of course, was not. But I, I felt so much closer to them in terms of the experience that I'd had growing up. So I was, I was there. I spent all my time at the Third World Center. I you know, remember listening to the stories of growing up in, you know, along the Texas-Mexico border um, in, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, which was the toughest uh, you know, area in New, York, in New York City at the time. You know, I, 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 those stories, it was just such a gift you know, to you know, be sitting there late at night, uh, hearing these uh, uh, brilliant uh, people tell the stories about what it was like growing up. And so I resonated with that. And then I got involved in, in uh, what was called the Asian American movement, which was um, a, a very uh, political movement. And it turned out later, I found out that, that these guys thought of themselves as um, uh, cells related to the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Right. I didn't know that at the time. I just, they were just activists, as far as I could tell. And they were saying great things and they were great people. I don't know if they're, 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 they're still involved. And of course, the Chinese Communist Party has evolved tremendously uh, since then. But, you know, I, I remember the, the experience of being with the other Asian Americans, which was kind of separate from the experience of being at the Third World Center. But uh, it was just absolutely exhilarating to me. I mean, I... I, I dug into it. I studied Asian American history. Um, we, you know, we put courses together on Asian American history. So this was, this was really uh, uh, a part of, um, uh, uh, you know, probably the most important part of my uh, undergraduate uh, college experience. And, um, and, and, and out of all that, you know, uh, what, what happened was this need to, to resolve my identity crisis. And, you know, back then, identity politics was just, you know, was the central thing. It wasn't, we, you know, the, 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 the African-Americans, uh, um, you know, what we would call Latinx uh, students now, you know, um, uh, the question that they always uh, asked was, well, you know, uh, does this person hang, hang Black, hang Latino, you know, does this person identify? You know, and 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 so one of the in inside the third world center, one of the worst things is for you to quote unquote not identify, meaning you know you think you can blend into the rest of the of the of the of the student body, and and you don't you know identify yourself as a person of color, and so this identity politics stuff was so important back then because in fact you know um, uh, when you were at Brown, if you had grown up in uh, a wealthy suburb of New York City or whatever, and you had always gone to private schools uh, and, and uh, because of that, uh, ignored, you know, other students of color or, you know, tried to blend in, that was, a, that was uh, the, the biggest crime you could commit uh, if you were at the Third World Center. And so I then started thinking, well, what does that mean for me? How, how does that, you know, what, what should I do? So um, uh, that's why I ended up 
trying to learn Korean at Brown, which was not successful. And then uh, when I got into medical school, uh, I, I, you know, Harvard had just started an MD-PhD program in anthropology. And, um, uh, uh, you know, I wish I could say I was really committed to the discipline of anthropology. What I really wanted to do was uh, go back to Korea, learn language, um, do my anthropological work in Korea, and then resolve in some way, uh, you know, the, my, my identity crisis. Uh, but in the, in, in, in the process of getting there, you know, I really, really studied um, Asian American uh, history, and, and it, it kind of seeped into my bones about what, what uh, you know, uh, what we had gone through, uh, you know, over, over that period of time, and just how similar it was uh, to the experience of other peoples of color, you know, uh, you know, this model minority thing, if you think about uh, the Asian Exclusion Act of 1882, you know, the, the Chinese people uh, were the only ones who were barred from citizenship uh, in that particular way. So it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a, it, you know, it, the, the history is so important uh, uh, for us to know. You, you hit on such a major chord in this notion of knowledge is power and kudos to you as a young person. And I see this need of like, the who am I? How do I resolve it? It's just a great driver for you to just get in and learn. Um, my, my guest on this week's show is uh, Asian Studies, African Studies um, scholar and, and really implored listeners to say there's a lot that just has to be learned. Like people just don't really know. And you know, I think this, um, <laughs> I love this third world center, you know, being this place for you to see, if you will, the disconnect and rather than sweep it aside and fit in, which, you know, a lot of folks do, right, to just make it all work, it really drove you to get to the core. You know, I call this the true north. So I just, I really want to applaud that. Um, and I could just see you. I mean, I could just see you so bright-eyed. Will you go back? So you mentioned the theological work and learnings, um, your mother's world, and, and just how, because you're, you're so deeply rooted in the service. And I'm wondering, the Third World Center, plus that background, how that you know, got you to the sense of how you wanted to, to impact the world. Well, uh, so, so Molly, I hear that a lot, that, that, um, that I'm really, I was really committed to service. I, I actually, um, I, if I'm honest, I, I, I can't really uh, honestly say that that was the, the, the focus. It, it really wasn't service. It was more justice. <laughs> so, mm. so uh, I, I wish, you know, I wish I could say have always been, uh, focused on you know sort of uh, you know protecting the small and the weak. Uh, uh, there's been some of that, of course. The thing that Martin Luther King stirred up in me, the thing that watching the anti-war protests stirred up in me, uh, was the sense of uh, having to fight injustice. Right, and so I think it's coming from a little bit of a different place. My uh, colleague and partner in starting uh, Partners in Health, the organization uh, that we started you know, now 35 years ago, uh, Paul Farmer, um, I think he's uh, one of the most uh, uh, dedicated people to the notion of serving others that I've ever met. And it comes from his Catholic faith and uh, you know, it comes from his personality. Uh, and it's probably the reason why we've been such a good team uh, because he he uh, is so focused on getting the service to the patients. And I've been focused on fighting the injustices that are just clearly there. You know, how can you tell uh, 25 million people in Africa 
when we have medicines that can help them live for another 40 or 50 years, that, oh, it's too complicated. We're just not going to treat you. How can you do that, right? Uh, my, my, you know, my friend Paul uh, would really want to focus on, you know, here's how we're going to set up clinical services so we can get more medicines to people. And I wanted to go and, 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 and fight the, uh, uh, you know, the World Health Organization and, and fight all these public health leaders who were telling us that it can't be done. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the notion that, that you've got to bear witness and that you have to um, say really uncomfortable things to really powerful people, and uh, you've got to take on these fights. I think that's what drove me. Right? And so the, the thing I told you about at Dartmouth, uh, they were interested in me because they thought I was competitive. I think if you put it another way, they, they thought that I would fight for things uh, that are worth fighting for. I so admire people. And, you know, Molly, we have a lot of friends who, who in common through Marshall Goldsmith, who, who uh, uh, really embody that notion of, uh, of service to others. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't think that's really me fully. I, I, I think I'm very lucky that the fights that I have wanted to take on uh, have led to, uh, you know, people getting access to, to HIV treatment, for example. Uh, but uh, for me, it was it was it was uh, it was about justice. And my mother would tell me that even as a young kid, um, you know, watching the civil rights movement on TV, that my my brother and my sister would watch it, and of course would be affected by it. But she said that um, uh, it tore me apart. You know, watching watching the injustice happen in front of me uh, affected me on a on a level that was uh, that was really really deep. Uh, and you know, it, it, at one point, I think I was nine or ten years old. Uh, I said to my mother, I said, you know, what are you doing, mom? Why aren't you out there protesting against the war? Why aren't you out there fighting the civil rights movement? I think she said something like, because I'm here making your sandwich, you little brat. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, this is, this is, this is what uh, has driven me. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it, um, uh, it, it was part of uh, an awakening for me too, because, you know, uh, my, 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 my friend, Paul, he really loves, you know, being in a village in Haiti and, and quietly taking care of patients. I mean, there are other things he does that's very public as well, but he really loved that. And at first, when we started Partners in Health, I really wanted to be like that. I really wanted to be a person <laughs> who loved being in a clinic in a really poor country, seeing patient after patient, but that just wasn't me. That didn't get me going. That was that felt burdensome uh, for me. I, I, I look. I appreciated the the um, opportunity to do it. I did it um, uh, enough. But uh, what I really wanted to do was to fight injustice at the at, at the highest level that I could reach. And uh, and and at each step in my career, uh, just through great good fortune that that's as improbable as my parents meeting in New York City, you know, as Korean refugees, uh, you know, I've had those opportunities. And, and, and so for me, it was justice and less, it's, it wasn't completely not service, uh, but, but, but less about service. I love, I love, I love, I love it that you <laughs> can articulate it. And it's awesome because it's the real you. And, I have the biggest smile on my face because this whole say it skillfully thing for me, it 
it was like, it's a work injustice. People aren't saying what they think needs to be said at work. You know, it's, and there's a whole moral thing, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, no, we can't have that. So I get it, that part of it. I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm so glad to know that now. Um, It's really interesting, Molly, because this is, um, I, I think in so many ways, uh, th- there's so much that, that I need to learn from you uh, because, you know, on things like uh, giving, uh, giving people who worked for me tough feedback, that's so hard, right? So, so that is really hard, makes me really uncomfortable. But, you know, the, this whole notion of speaking truth to justice, you know, going to a meeting full of the most powerful people in, you know, just you name the world, you know, at, at the G20 leaders meetings, right? I, would, I, I attended all the G20 leaders meetings. Um, I was at the table for seven years, the G7 leaders meetings. I knew them all. I knew them all well, you know, at, at that table. Uh, and, and, you know, also earlier, um, when every single public health expert tells you it's impossible to treat HIV uh, in Africa, um, you know, uh, standing up and saying it in that context, you know, uh, uh, in the face of the, the most respected um, experts in the world and, you know, being a younger person saying you're wrong and this is not, you're not only wrong, uh, but, you know, this will define you and our generation as the generation that stood back and let an entire continent collapse uh, because we thought it was inconvenient or too difficult uh, to treat uh, these people for HIV. You know, I, I, I never had problems saying that piece of it, but the piece of it where I had to tell, um, a, a, you know, a, a nice person uh, that he or she was not performing, oh, my God, you know, I, that, uh, that, that, uh, uh, that scared the hell out of me. I, I, I just, I just think that is so, and I get it. And I think listeners all around are getting it because this notion of feedback is, I mean, I get more asks about that. So we'll segue there for for a moment because you have this notion, the justice framework for you, the right and the wrong, you know, is, is deep. Like you can't deny that. And, you know, when I, when I work with folks, you know, clearly the first part of getting into conversations is the relationship aspect is like, what's going on for me? And when you think about it's hard and it's scary for you, Dr. Jim, think about like, what about it is, what is so scary and uncomfortable for you? Let's say you're giving someone, you know, you've got to let a nice person go. Um, I I think it's, uh, you know, being able to deal with, uh, with their, you know, their sadness, their anger, their pain right there. I mean, you, you, you've got a, you, you know, they're going to be upset. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, at, at, when we were, when we had started Partners in Health, I was, uh, I, I was the executive director of Partners in Health. And um, the, my coworkers used to make fun of me and say that uh, just, you know, when you go in and talk to Jim, you've just got to understand that his office is a no cry zone. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know that, that he he he's not you know because we were all pretty young and a lot of the people who built partners in health were medical students at the time that we built it and so of course you know they were upset about things they you know they they would um, uh, get into conflicts with each other and so 
uh, you know, I was, <laughs> I was not known as a person who um, you could go and, and cry and pour your heart out to. Now, you know, if you wanted to come and talk to me about, about, you know, the work or about, uh, uh, you know, an injustice that we needed to fight together, you know, I was the person, but my office was a no cry zone. And I say that because, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not something I'm proud of, uh, but it's something I've really worked on. Uh, and it's something that I have tried to get better at, but it's, it's that, uh, you know, I think Molly, I've heard you say it, um, that getting comfortable with others' pain and sadness requires that you're very comfortable with yourself. And so maybe that's what it is. I, you know, I, I usually, I feel pretty comfortable with myself. On the other hand, you know, I grew up in a, in a, in an environment where, you know, I was always stared at, you know, I, you know, who, who where did you come from? So may, maybe it goes back uh, to that, but um uh, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't chalk it up to anything because my brother, my older brother, uh, is extremely comfortable having those conversations. So, so uh, I <laughs> he think got all the genes. Hard. Yeah, I think it's just hard. I, it, it's, the, I think it's the hardest thing uh, uh, for anybody. I, I, you know, if I had ten brilliant, uh, you know, just as an example, if there were, you know, ten brilliant uh, senior managers, and I had probably. 30 or 40 when I was at the World Bank Group. And, and you asked me, so what percentage of that 30 or 40 uh, are really good at having these hard conversations? I'd say, oh, I'd be, you'd be, we'd be lucky if we had 10, 15 or 20% who were really good at it. I just think it, it, it is something that's really, really hard. And, and you know, I, I, I dove into this. We brought in this person who uh, used to be a consultant on, on HR, uh, and had worked at General Electric. And at General Electric, they know that this is extremely important. So that they, they actually regimented the process of giving feedback so that people, you know, they, they, they didn't leave it to chance, in other words, that giving feedback was so important that there was a regimented process for how you do it. And, and we try to bring some of that to the World Bank. And, and, and for me, it was in recognizing that I wasn't so great at it. Uh, but, um, you know, our mutual friend, Marshall Goldsmith, uh, Marshall helped me a lot with that, and um, and uh, you know the our, our another mutual friend uh, Alan Mullally uh, also uh, helped me a lot, and and I, I think toward the end of my tenure at the World Bank um, uh, got a lot better because I had a I had a system uh, to go to. <laughs> well, that's great to have the process. I'll just offer a few things, and one is that. You know, you can control you and do your best, and the other person has their own world, and that's their that's that's within them. And so, if they lose it, which is I totally get it, it can be like I cause it. Really, they're causing it for themselves. So there's a disconnect to just not put the pressure. There's no pressure on you for how another person receives it. That would be one notion. Another is because justice is so important to you, and you think right. Is it right for someone? to be on a track that really isn't going to pay dividends for them to be their best self and contribute. And is it the right track to have an organization where the wrong person is in a job? It's not going to help the organization. And so that is not, you know, necessarily a pretty, like you don't like the answer, but the answer is, gosh, you wouldn't want the wrong thing to happen. You wouldn't want to put the wrong person in the wrong job for them or for the organization. So the flip side in sharing the news is saying, hey, you know, what do you think is going on to the GE model? What do I think is going on? And there's a disconnect. And 
I think the notion of what is the feed forward from Marshall, what would be better is for you to be in a role that's a really great fit for you. And this is the opportunity for you to have that. And we'll support you any way we can. And we're grateful for all you have done. And you're a great human being. But the fit isn't there or, or what have you on the role part. And it doesn't make it, you know, I'm not saying you're going to like it, Dr. Jim, but that might help you from a thought process into the justice idea that, you know, you wouldn't have hired the wrong person into the wrong job, right? This happens to be the situation. So you can't, if you don't do anything about it, you're sort of not, you know, stepping into to your role. Yeah. Let me just pause there. How does that land? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> You know, the, the thing that's helped, been helpful is um, Alan, Alan told me a story about how um, he gotten tough feedback and uh, his boss had come to see him on a Sunday. And Alan said that he, he uh, had gotten into this mode where, um, you know, at Boeing, people would say things to each other like, well, what about that? Don't you understand? And, and the way that they talked to each other was... Um, it was very um, uh, sort of aggressive, and he'd gotten into that culture. So he said that his boss came to him on a Sunday, and he said, um, uh, you know, Alan, you know, the way you've been doing things, it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And so, look, hey, Alan, I'm really rooting for you. I want you to get better, but I'm telling you, you got to get better. And then got, you know, it didn't even come into to Alan's house, got into a car and drove away. And so Alan said, wow, that was really powerful. And so that's how he does it now. And he, he uh, s- says to people immediately when something bad happens, whether it's a Sunday or whatever, he goes and says, you know, that's not working for me. And um, because that's not working for me, I'm rooting for you. I really want you to get better. I'm going to do everything I can to help you get better. Uh, but you got to get better. And so, um, you know, at the World Bank, when you hire somebody, um, it becomes an international event. And, uh, you know, especially if you hire somebody in leadership positions, um, you know, the newspaper in their hometown, in their home country, covers it. You know, so-and-so, a new vice president for this, that, and the other, you know, this is the highest ranking position for anyone from this country, blah, blah, blah. So it's a big deal. And and so... um, I actually just completely stole that uh, from, from Alan. And uh, when something's not working out, we, we put in a system where uh, people actually get evaluated. We did not have a system uh, uh, that, was, that was really functioning before I got there. And so if somebody's really doing poorly, I would say, hey, you know, this is not good. Uh, your evaluations are, are, are not good. And this is where you are in terms of the percentile. Now, I like you. I really want you to get better. Uh, but you got to get better. And then uh, we would have uh, coaches from the MG100 come in and actually coach them. So uh, Mark Thompson, uh, uh, our, our great friend, Mark Thompson, the number one CEO coach in the world, Mark came in and I think he, he coached five or six of my, uh, 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 my, my top leaders and half of them got better. It was amazing. They, some of them got so much better uh, that they went from having the worst evaluations to having some of the best. And others just didn't get better. Uh, and so, you know, uh, I, the, the conversations with the ones who got better were, uh, were great. They were, they were easy. And I kind of thought that if I did this, 
somehow the conversations were the ones who didn't get better would be easier. But, you know, Molly, they weren't. <laughs> they weren't it's just horrible. It's just horrible. <laughs> they weren't any better. And <laughs> the fundamental issue was that they disagreed with me. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that there was one person who uh, uh, brought um, uh, with them uh, their own coach. And um, they kept saying, uh, oh, don't worry about me, Jim. I have my own coach. Uh, I work with my coach every day, right? And I said, well, what does a coach tell you? Well, coach tells me I'm great. <laughs> coach tells me I'm a great manager. And so um, uh, I said, well, uh, I want you to work with, uh, with Mark. And, uh, you know, Mark came back and said, oh, serious problems, right? The very, very little insight here. And uh, um, it's just, it's really not, there's, there's, the change is not happening. And so this person fundamentally disagreed with me, said, well, what, I, you're completely wrong. My coach tells me I'm doing great. I'm a great manager. I'm a great communicator. What, you know, you're just wrong. Right? And so what do you do? At that point, then the uh, the separation was not a happy one, uh, and so you know um, I realized that no matter what systems you have in place, um, you, you know tough conversations are tough conversations. Yeah. Well, the I'm hearing denial, and you highlighted really it's the beauty of when you're the decision maker, you're the decision maker, and the people who aren't, I think the denial is they don't quite get that, and that's you know at some point they'll have a wake up call. I remember that was one of the big things Marshall pounded yeah. into us. Like, just That's know who makes the decision. I just want to uh, offer to listeners, your movie, Bending the Arc, is spectacular. And so uh, encourage folks. I don't know how people get access to that. Netflix. Netflix. It's on Netflix. Yeah. yeah. Go to Netflix. That's just it's a great experience um, and I highly recommend folks uh, tap into that. If you take a step back, any particular regrets or do-overs I mean anything you'd care to share on that oh well uh, Molly there are so many things that I would do over I mean <laughs> <laughs> the list the list is endless uh, and and uh, you know uh, uh, when I was uh, at Dartmouth um, uh, I convinced Conan O'Brien to come and give uh, the commencement address and people said, well, how could you, you know, cause Conan had, he, he, I think he's given exactly two commencement addresses in his life. One at Harvard is alma mater and one at Dartmouth when I was there. Uh, and the story behind it is pretty simple that uh, his father, uh, Tom O'Brien was my teacher. He's an infectious uh-huh. disease doctor at, oh. uh, at, at, at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So Tom is a, an old, old friend. And when I called Tom, he said, Hey, you know, Conan never does anything I tell him but I'll, I'll talk to him. And so Conan agreed to come in and give a speech. And this was probably two or three years after, uh, maybe two years after he'd gotten the job of being uh, the replacement uh, for, um, uh, uh, for Jay Leno. And then Jay Leno took the job back. I, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, but, I do. Yeah, it was terrible, right? And, and Conan was in terrible shape. And so um, he had just, sort of gotten through all that and had his own show on, uh, on, on TBS, right. That can, that it's, I, I think, I think it's, it's going, it's going up. It's been going on for a long time. And so Conan came and he was, uh, he, he was deeply reflective, also hilarious. So it, 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 it's one of the most watched commencement addresses of all. So if listeners want to watch 
Conan, uh, he he um, he makes fun of me uh, brutally, but but he also he also gave some really really great uh, uh, um, you know messages, and um, one of them was uh, that uh, he said, you know, this has been the worst experience of my life uh, to have been given the the greatest job that anyone could ever want in my business, which is, you know, hosting the tonight show and then to have it taken away, right? This is, this is the worst experience of my life. And so he said, he said, you know, but as a great philosopher, uh, Nietzsche said, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. He said, but what he failed to tell you is that it almost kills you. So this is, you know, I, I, I say that because, um, um, that these things that I'd like to do over, right? Yeah, they made me stronger. Uh, but man, I remember just how painful uh, those the, the the those times were. And you know, so examples. I think we've made so many mistakes in getting to uh, the endpoint of of uh, uh, you know of of of, re- of really changing the world in terms of uh, its commitment to treating poor people for diseases like drug-resistant tuberculosis and HIV. We made, um, we, we made great progress, but there were just so many mistakes that we made along the way. And I think for me, the pain of remembering uh, those mistakes and the pain of remembering just how, how bad it was, how bad I felt at that moment, um, uh, I, I, I think, that's the sort of Nietzschean moment, right? That mm-hmm. uh, because it almost kills you, uh, it teaches you a really, really powerful lesson, right? So I, I guess the, the times where you feel most gut-punched, um, uh, you know, for me, and, I, and I, 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 it got better over time, but um, it was when uh, the press went after, went after me that they went after me at in the World Health Organization. And, and you know, the thing is, uh, Molly, it's just a tiny little part of the press, right? It's the, it's the global health press. It's the global health articles. And, and, and uh, when, when things would come out really critical of what we were doing, it, it would cause me great pain. And, and it was usually because I didn't say it, say it skillfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 you know, at, at Dartmouth, there were two tiny newspapers that covered what we were doing. Uh, but when I didn't do something well and it came out, it, you know, you, you just feel like God, everywhere I walk, people have read this article and people, you know, are, are, are thinking these terrible things about me. And usually nobody read the article. Right. So, so, um, uh, you know, that's part of, of, uh, of being a public person. And of course at, at, at the world bank as well. So, uh, it felt so unjust to me that that you know they've got this fundamentally wrong. They're accusing me of things. Why are they going after me like this? What's going on? And and uh, um, uh, you, you know the times when it was due to the fact that I didn't say something correctly or that I did make a mistake, it was even more painful. Uh, uh, but you know, in in everyday interactions, uh, Molly, there there are a dozen different interactions that I could just reel off to you right now that I wish I'd handled better, right? Um, in the, the thing I don't regret though, I have to tell you, the thing I don't regret is uh, um, uh, saying yes 
to jobs that most people felt um, I, I wouldn't be able to do. <laughs> so, yes. so saying yes to something that sounds impossible, um, that's been sort of the, the thing that I've, I've kept doing uh, that, that has, uh, you know, and, and in each time I did that, there were, there were um, uh, things that almost killed me, right? There were things that almost sort of brought me to my knees. Uh, but each time that happened and I got up, you do, you do feel a little bit stronger. It doesn't dull the pain the next time it happens. Uh, but, you, you know, you do gain a little bit of insight. And, uh, you know, I find myself now after having had so many different careers, uh, you know, being able to um, uh, uh, draw from that in, in a way that's, uh, that, that, that's, that's really helpful. So anyway, I, you know, when you say are there things you regret, it's just a litany of things. There's so many things, so <laughs> oh. many things that I regret, so many things that I wish I could do over. Um, but uh, the fact that they almost killed me uh, um, and that I put myself into positions where it felt like it was going to kill me, uh, that that that's been that's been sort of a, a cornerstone of my career. Well, I appreciate the self compassion you're modeling for listeners because it's great to admit that, and then but not to take yourself down and to keep yourself moving forward. Uh, we could keep going on. So one, la- uh, two last things. One is what gives you most hope for the world? Wow. <clears throat> well. Let me start by saying the thing that worries me most is that uh, so much of what happens in our world is, uh, uh, is related to who happens to be in leadership positions at any given time. And so for, for COVID, uh, in every single epidemic pandemic for the last 100 years, the United States in one way or another has been in the lead. And it sometimes uh, in a very bold and upfront way, uh, other times very quietly in the background, working through the World Health Organization and others. Uh, but American leadership, clarity of vision, uh, willingness to step up with financial support, and especially willingness to step up with, uh, with technical leadership, that has been a part of every single pandemic for the last 100 years, except this one, except COVID. It's changing very rapidly. It's, it's, it's changing right now. Uh, but uh, what that taught me, and it's something that I learned from sitting in these G20 leaders meetings, is that global action is extremely difficult. And the personalities matter a lot. Right? And so uh, when, when there was President Obama and uh, David Cameron and Angela Merkel and at the time also Xi Jinping, when, when you saw the four of them uh, being able to huddle in a, in a, you know, during, during a meeting and agree on, on a few things, boom, things happened, right? Um, huge, difficult issues move forward. The climate agreement, right? That's, that's, um, that's the group. And you, know, you have to throw Francois Hollande from France in there because he was, he was uh, also, you know, because the meeting was in Paris, he was completely committed to making it happen. Uh, things happened. And then, you know, after President Obama left, things changed. And so um, uh, it just, it just shows me that, uh, that leadership is just really, really critical and that democracy is fickle. 
right? So that worries me. I think the thing that gives me hope, first of all, um, uh, Molly, you, I'm sure you've heard me say this, uh, but when you're looking at situations like uh, poverty and climate change and the pandemic, um, uh, you know, having optimism and moving forward with optimism, to me, it's not the result of, uh, of analysis. Uh, being optimistic is a moral choice. I firmly believe that, that you've got to go into situations that seem uh, intractable uh, with optimism. Not necessarily that you're going to find a solution, uh, but that, uh, you know, people of goodwill, um, and, and you have to spend some time trying to find those people of goodwill, but the people of goodwill will find a way forward. And so I, I'm always optimistic. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you can't take on uh, problems that, that the leading experts in the world tell you are intractable unless you have a little bit of optimism. So that, 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 that's, uh, that, that's first, firstly what I believe. And, you know, I, I always quote the great um, uh, Italian um, uh, philosopher um, and social critic, uh, Antonio Gramsci, who used to say, you know, in all things, have uh, a, a pessimism of the intellect, uh, but an optimism of the will. So you've got you, you to do the, do, the, the, do the studies, you've got to do the analysis. But and then at the end of the day, you know, you have to have an optimism about, about what will happen. So leadership is really critical. Um, when there's a failure of leadership, really bad things can happen. Um, but I remain optimistic because there is an amazing movements of, uh, of, uh, of young people who are forcing questions around, um, uh, you know, ESG, environment, um, social and, and governance issues in everything from, uh, you know, how businesses do their work to how investors invest. Uh, there's uh, a tremendous uh, interest in, 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 in turning the tide on climate change. Um, I think that, that, uh, uh, one of the things that's happening with the Black Lives Move, Black Lives Matter, and now even you know the Asian American Foundation, this new organization that's trying to fight anti-Asian violence, I think there is an awakening, and there, there is this sense that um, uh, uh, that that it's possible uh, for us to really be respectful uh, of uh, of all people, of the choices they make, of what they look like, of who they choose to love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That it, that 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 um, uh, pro, you know, they're making progress on that front uh, is possible. And so, you know, as I, um, as I think about uh, what's happening to Asia, I mean, just if you step back, Molly, when we were growing up, and I'm older than you, and so maybe it was worse when I was growing up, but when I was growing up, what are the things that people knew about Asia? Well, you know, Korea was uh, one of the poorest countries in the world. And when I was growing up, uh, people used to say, hey, you should eat that broccoli because think of all the starving children in China. Um, and, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, if, uh, if something broke, if you, if you were, you know, uh, if you had some kind of product and it broke, the joke was to say, ha, made in Japan. Then later, the joke was, ha, made in Taiwan, right? And, and recently, of course, it's, ha, made in China. Everything, you know, you know, people don't say that anymore. People don't say it. So, so you know, uh, the Asians, uh, this, this, especially East Asia, has gone from being 
uh, mostly backward, except for Japan. You know, Japan had high rates of literacy, um, even in the early 1900s, whereas, you know, China uh, and, and, and Korea had very low rates, even into the 1950s. Asia now has gone from being sort of the butt of jokes and in a, in a, in a place identified by its poverty and backwardness to now being the leaders of the world. And so uh, as, uh, as Asians, and these are conversations I've had with, uh, with the Asian leaders, um, you know, as an aside, I, I, I said earlier that uh, I, I grew up in Muscatine, Iowa. Well, Muscatine, Iowa happens to be the very town that President Xi Jinping lived in for a month when he was a young man in, uh, in the agriculture department. So for first time I met him, I said, President Xi, you know, it's a great honor to meet you. And this was soon after he took office and soon after I took office. I said, uh, it's a great honor to meet you. You know, we have something in common. He said, I know you're from Muscatine, Iowa. How are my friends in Muscatine? So it was like a running joke we had during the seven years that I was at the World Bank. We would joke about our, our, our shared hometown. And so all this is, I got to know the Chinese leaders very well. And this is the question I kept putting to them. How will you lead going forward? Now, you know, there's, there's, uh, there are, is all kind of controversy here. And, you know, there's all kinds of criticisms that people make of China. But they lifted 800 million people out of extreme poverty in about 30 years. Uh, you know, a, a, a success in that realm that's just absolutely unprecedented. And so now the question for them is, how are they going to lead? And how are Asians going to lead? Is there a way for uh, East Asian leadership to take on a very different kind of, of, uh, of um, uh, uh, what's the right word? A, a very different kind of um, historical tone. And I say that because, you know, um, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, philanthropy and there's a lot of, you know, uh, uh, donor assistance kind of stuff going on now, but that's not the whole history of uh, the West's engagement with, uh, uh, with, uh, with poverty in the poor world. You know, we have a history of colonialism, of slavery, if you go back a little bit further, uh, and also neocolonialism and, and all kinds of things that were not so, so happy. And so, uh, uh, you know, just as the West is, has worked so hard to move away from that and more toward, you know, a different kind of way of engaging with poverty in the poor world, you know, Asia also has an opportunity. And can we get to a place where there is truly mutual respect, where we really believe that every single child born in, in this world should have an opportunity to get an education, to have access to healthcare, and to lift themselves out of poverty like we've seen so many countries do. Is that gonna be possible? Well, I have to remain optimistic about it, and I will till, till I'm dead, that we can, we, can, we can do something like that. But the thing that's so worrisome <laughs> is that if you get the wrong mix of leadership, where even if it's just, you know, you have good leaders, but they can't work together, um, you know, it can really, really throw things off. And so, uh, you know, the thing that, 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 that we share, Molly, this commitment to the, you know, the, the 100 leaders group that we're both involved with, uh, you know, helping people to say things better, helping people to communicate with each other, helping people to put things on the table that need to be put on the table, and in that way, helping them to be better leaders, this is really, really important. This is, it's, it's the most important task because my goodness, the, the, the worst problems in the world uh, uh, absolutely uh, uh, can be tackled if you have the right leadership um, to take these problems on. 
I love it. I love it. The one last thing, a few words. You've been so generous with what you've shared. And I'm just wondering what it was like for you what? to share your, your thoughts and your story today. Well, you know, uh, um, let me think. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, I've seen, I've seen your, um, uh, your little video blogs, uh, and, uh, you know, it's sort of like, oh my God, I wish I had seen this <laughs> before I, before I did all these, uh, things that, that were so unskillful in, in, in the way I'd said it. Um, uh, you know, so when I, when I, when I saw those things, it was a little intimidating for me to come on uh, to your show because, uh, you know, I, I, I don't always say things skillfully. So, but, but um, I think for me, knowing you and knowing that we share this background of being Asian Americans and, you know, having uh, you know, watched you uh, really, really skillfully uh, interact with, uh, you know, our, our, um, our colleagues in the Marshall Goldsmith 100 group, uh, you know, I, I wasn't sure. Uh, um, I wasn't sure what I would say. I wasn't sure uh, how I would take the conversation. So I was a little bit worried going into it. Um, and you know, you drew things out. I had a lot of things that I, I, I said to you that I've never uh, actually said in that way before. So um, you know, uh, not only do you say things skillfully, you you, you drew things out in me that uh, uh, that I hadn't uh, really expected. But, uh, you know, I think what you're doing is really important. And, uh, I, I, you know, it, it strikes me that, that this is not part of our training. I didn't have someone coming to me and saying, okay, Jim, here's what we're going to do. Now that you're taking on this important job, uh, we're going to really uh, work on helping you um, uh, say things to people, difficult things, uh, good things. Uh, we're going to help you say things um, uh, more skillfully so that you have the kind of outcomes that you want or that you build the kind of relationships that you want. Uh, you know, the closest thing that I've seen is uh, uh, at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, where um, in the MBA program, you have uh, more than 20 different team experiences and each team experience uh, is watched carefully by a team coach so that uh, the coach gives you feedback at the end of the team experience about exactly how you did as a member of the team. It's the closest thing I've seen. And um, people who've gone to Tuck tell me that that's the most powerful uh, experience, uh, or one of the most powerful experiences of being at Tuck. And we also hear from uh, companies that they go to that, uh, that Tuck students are prepared to work in complex environments uh, more than just about any other uh, MBA students. So, you know, um, uh, what you do, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's something that, that I think should be sort of uh, be, uh, a, a, you know, part of, uh, of uh, education and, and, and uh, you know, how you, uh, uh, how you go into an organization. So I hope that's where you're going with this, uh, with this Molly. Well, I am, and uh, I'm all smiles and all gratitude for our amazing time. I want to thank you, thank you, thank you for all you shared and for all that you've done and still do to help, you know, really all human beings participate in creating a better future for our world. Um, thank you, Dr. Jim, for being part of the solution. I'm here for you if I, I can ever be of help. You take good care. Thank you, Molly. 
Uh, so I'm going to wrap um, in honor of a family friend, Dr. Li Xu, who recently passed peacefully at age 92. Oh. Enjoy life to the fullest. Sing, dance, laugh, be happy, and don't worry too much. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Dr. Jim's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.